It's really simple. Know the user, know the magic, connect the two. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, my guest today is Danja Dervisholu. She is the Vice President of Marketing for Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Google, a company that you might have heard of. She's been at Google for more than 12 years and oversees teams in 35 countries. She's responsible for marketing everything from hardware to consumer apps to ads platforms, so she's got a very broad perspective on modern marketing to drive the growth of all of those businesses for Google. She also co-founded Google Arts and Culture, an initiative that has trained millions of people to date across EMEA and also helped millions of people find jobs. Prior to Google, Yanja spent a decade at Unilever and four years at Yahoo in the early web uh, 1.0.com era. She sits on the Heineken Supervisory Board, the Serpentine Galleries Innovation Circle, Brookings Institute Global Leadership Council. I could go on and on. She sits on many different boards. And actually, it's one of the conversations that we talk about how she's kind of expanded her career in that direction. Yanja is also an expert tarot card reader and Apple connoisseur. Unfortunately, we did not get to talk about those, so I'll have to come back to her on that. We did talk about some brands that she's fascinated by, some trends that she's very curious about right now, and spent a lot of time kind of talking about what mattered most to getting her to where she is today as CMO of one of the biggest brands in the world. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Yanja. Hey, Yanja, how are you doing? Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Great to be here, Eric. Great. To kick things off, I'd love to hear about a brand that you are fascinated by right now. And obviously, it can't be Google. It has to be another one. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thanks so much for having me here. Um, a brand that I'm fascinated about. There's a couple. Uh, one is uh, Gucci, not just because of the amazing movie, which felt like a two-hour-long ad for Gucci. That was just amazing. Um, but also because I just uh, am about to join their board, the board of Caring, which is the company that owns Gucci, Saint Laurent, Alexander McQueen. And um, I'm fascinated by the brand. In some way, they're very experimental and great in digital. In some ways, you know, I look at their website and think about buying something on the Gucci website versus other websites like Netaporte matches, you know, the whole journey of discovery and, and uh, to purchase, to return, and the whole experience. I just think, A, they're amazing, but B, they have so much more to do. And, um, and that excites me. It's hard to separate the marketer from the, from the shopaholic as I look at these brands. But Gucci definitely, or Saint Laurent, all those caring brands really excite me, both personally and uh, professionally. When I was interviewing for the board, uh, they were saying, you know, and telling me about the board and stuff. And at the end, they said, and you know, this is the kind of uh, salary a board member gets. And you get this card. It's a 50% discount. I was like, what? Salt. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's real, but I, or if I imagined it. But if that's the case, I was like, you, you should totally lead with that. 
And then, um, so I'm excited about that, and I'm excited about, we're going to say something, there's one more brand well, that I want to tell you. No, I do want to hear about that. I, I have to say about the movie. So oh. I read the book, yeah. and the movie, I actually didn't finish, and it was, like, I think it was well done. I could not get past the cognitive dissonance oh. of why like, they were Italian yeah, speaking in English, but yeah. with heavily and very bad Italian accents. I, I just couldn't make it work. Yeah. I'm like, we know that they're American actors. I know. Just have them speak in English. It would be so much better. I know. It was funny. I don't yeah. know. I just couldn't get past that. But I, as a brand, I think it's I very interesting. You. I feel you. I, I felt that way. And I unfortunately, I read this great Tom Ford article about the movie, before the movie. And it's like, and it sounds like, uh, what's her name? Come on, lead actress. Lady Gaga? Lady Gaga. It's like, why does yeah. Lady Gaga have a Moscow? She sounds more Moscow than Milan. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't heard that because the whole movie, I was thinking of that when I watched But it was great. And then you've got I, Jared Leto that's like so over the I, top. And I know. Maybe it's because yeah. I, I speak Italian. And so to me, it's like, it's kind of like when people try to put on bad Boston accents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah the hat on right yeah. now. You're asking what this hat means, Boston Red Sox. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. Um, anyway, I just couldn't get past that. But I will say it's very interesting You know, my background's coming up in the agency world and kind of social digital media. I I think we worked with Cartier when I was at VaynerMedia, but in general, I always found that luxury brands were so slow to adapt new channels and new media and so precious. And I think that's the right word about traditional media channels needing to be the places that their brands were represented, print, TV, out of home. And they were so reluctant to go on to social. And now, of course, they're there because it's been a while and you know we've proven that luxury brands can build brand and drive growth in social but i always thought that was a huge opportunity and you know a lot of what we're looking at is is challenger brands and i think you see challenger luxury brands that's a big area of opportunity that they have against the incumbents the carings of the world and that portfolio of brands is that they're just faster moving to adopt new media new technology and new channels to reach this audience yeah totally Totally. But um, I'm really happy to see that Caring are asking all the questions. What do we do about the metaverse? What do we do with NFTs? Uh, and I'm like, actually, your website speed could improve before you ask all these questions. But And your omni-channel strategy, which we call, you know, how do you show up on the store versus the online? And how does it all seamlessly become one experience? Perhaps an ideal, a shared experience with friends when you choose to, you know, think about that more. Uh, but uh, but it's great to see even the non-challenger brands so excited about the future and what it means for them and, and always pushing boundaries. Did you see the Metaverse fashion show that no. happened recently? No, I heard about it, but I haven't seen it. I just it. read about it. I, uh, I heard morning, it was actually. underwhelming. Okay. But uh, I, I read that, you know, because I, I work with Derek Blasberg, I'm so lucky to call him a colleague and a friend. He's uh, he and he leads our YouTube fashion and beauty. Um, that's what he leads globally. And so he's always a great insight. And I basically heard that um, it was a great effort and got a lot of interest, but a little bit you know, lots of learnings, let's say, a little bit ahead, ahead yeah. of its time. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of things are in the NFT Web3 space for brand is people kind of experimenting, trying to figure it out. I mean, the other thing that 
is definitely happening is there's a good amount of innovation for the sake of innovation. People wanting headlines, not just on the client side, like agencies really push for that as well. But I think, and I hope pretty soon, you're going to see some of these brands that either have experimented a little bit and gotten learnings or have been waiting and kind of measuring twice to cut once with their activation in NFTs and Web3 that I think are going to do something very different. And I think the biggest difference is going to be a lot of what brands have done so far has been focused on ownership. Hey, you get a virtual t-shirt from Balenciaga that you can wear around the metaverse. And I think the bigger opportunity is actually access. So you, the holder of this token, get to come to the backstage version of the next fashion show that we do. So it's you know oversimplified and there's so much more that goes into it, but I'm really interested in kind of the, the next wave of NFT and brand activations and what that's going to look like. Yeah. But I mean, I really welcome, I totally agree. It's, we, we, we always think like the first TV ads were print ads on a TV screen, right? So it's like the virtual uh, t-shirt that you mentioned is, is a, but it's actually going to be about experiences, access to experiences. You're so right. But I just welcome this whole experimentation and leaning forwards from the fashion industry, because on one hand, uh, they can be quite anti-online. I have one friend who's a CMO of a big fashion brand, and she's like, tell, you know, actually, my title is marketing. But what's the opposite of marketing when you're trying to make it so exclusive and so hard to get? Like, that's kind of my job. And the luxury world is really good at that as well, like on marketing, or it's actually another way of marketing, really. Yeah, um, exactly. But then... Sorry, um, I, I jumped in. So what yeah. was your second brand? No, no, I, I really want to tell you this other story that you reminded me of, because there's one end is fashion brands leaning almost so much in towards the future that they miss the basic things that they could be doing right now putting their brand's online and offline experience well together, looking at that data in one, you know, one, one coherent way, um, uh, making their apps and websites much faster, much more user-friendly, like just the nitty-gritty basics of uh, uh, online and offline. You know, but I just applaud that they are leaning so forwards, and I'm like, no, 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 why don't you just focus on these basics first and then we can experiment with the future. But that's in stark contrast to my early days when I joined the internet. And I remember I was at the Dorchester Hotel, this fancy conference with lots of CMOs. And I was like the little Yahoo CMO of Europe and with the smallest budget and the the the, the, the CMO with the biggest budget and, you know, was giving a keynote speech and he was uh, the CMO of a big auto brand. So I listened very carefully. And then at the end, I, I raised my hand. He said, okay. So I said, this is the year 2006, so it has to be put in that context. But still, we still have these kinds of CMOs today, which is why I'm applauding the, the other CMOs that are leaning towards experimentation. I said, 80% of people who are looking to buy a car start looking online, probably with a brand in mind like yours, but they may or may not end up at the dealer of that brand, They, depending on how that online search goes. So with that in mind, what percentage of your budget is online? And he said to me, not just to me, to the whole room, like, 
zero. And he was really proud of it. And he was like, this is just a marginal thing that you're talking about, and it's probably going to pass. And there's still a lot of uh, people like that who just don't want to do anything. So, or think, I don't know, think it's not for them. So I really, that you were, that point you were making about challenger brands are really good at, at not being like that and embracing online, experimenting, making mistakes and, and moving on. So that's one thing you reminded me of. And then the other brand is another uh, fashion retail brand. It's Mavi in Turkey. They are like the Gap Banana Republic and Gap of Turkey. So they're very famous here, hundreds of stores around the country, and in, in fact, a global company with presence in other countries and um, much more accessible. Um, and uh, and actually, they also provide mainly jeans to probably some of the designer brands that you wear, but it's been actually made by them. So there is amazing company. I know the founders, the founding family, uh, I've been on their board and I've learned so much about their journey and what's the role of marketplaces that sell their products versus their online uh, stores versus um, uh, uh, offline stores. What does the brand mean? What does it stand for? How do you do marketing in this day and age? It's been really, really exciting for me to learn from them and about this whole industry in the process. So those are the two brands, Mavi and Gucci. They even rhyme. So I want to go off script for a second, if oh, you yeah. will allow me. Because you mentioned already, and I know, you know you're involved in so many organizations, board, advisor, et cetera. I'm just curious if there's a way, because I think there's people listening. And also for me, you know, I just announced um, yesterday, I took another board position with a fintech based out of Vancouver, Canada, that's trying to basically build a technology platform for family offices, which is an area of financial services that's very traditional and outdated. And I've done a couple of advisory and board roles before. But with your experience, I'm very curious how you approach those roles. Do you have a way of thinking about your role, your involvement, what you focus on? Like for people listening, including myself, who are taking on board roles or looking to take on board or advisory roles, what advice would you give them on how to try to add the most value when your time is so limited and you might not always be so up to date on everything that's going on within the business? It's a great, great question. And I've certainly asked this question to many, many people and have had uh, a few board roles now. So let me share my experience and my learnings. One is be in purposeful about what you want out of the board experience. For example, mine is, I started saying it's learning. Well, learning, you could listen to TED Talks in your own time, not ha or go to a few conferences. And so you really need to be you know, mindful about what you're trying to do and is the board role really the right answer to that? And I'm gonna guess yes. You know, you because you want to step out of your own area, which in my case is tech. But, uh, you know, I wanted to go back to boards like co on companies like Unilever, uh, sort of more not the tech world. And I wanted to expand my horizons and I wanted to be able to operate at that level, which is a different, not just the uh, sort of a 
what a big responsibility it is, but it's also not an executive role. It's called a non-executive director. What does that even mean? And how do you best add value? Just gaining that experience was great for me. So first is know what you want from the board experience and approach it with that in mind. Second is, okay, you've done that. You really, you want a board experience. You know what your reasons are. Don't just say what I did in the beginning. Hey, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, you get approached a lot by boards or headhunters that are actually specialized in placing people on boards. Can you drop my name when you're not interested? That's a very reactive approach as opposed to my dream boards would be these ones. I'm just going to dream, you know, and then trying to go after them. So that's my second advice. And then the third advice is, or learning rather, is I decided it's this board. It's happening. I'm now asking friends, should I do this board? And my one of my friends said to me, you need to know whether it's a mushroom board or not. I said, what's a mushroom board? He said, the CEO keeps it in the dark and feeds it shit. I was like, really? <laughs> and um, and uh, I thought that was interesting. So what do you do with that information? What if the board you're joining is a mushroom board? And, and so, you know, I guess that it doesn't really matter. It's not my full-time job. I'm there to gain experience and and support the CEO and uh, the board to the extent that they need me, which I realize isn't just in terms of my digital and marketing and women. You know, those are the three hats that I bring to every board I join. But it's actually, I've learned so much at Google about how we do compensation, how we set metrics, uh, company culture or AI impacting this industry or the retail industry when it was Heineken or cybersecurity. I could bring so much from my company that would help this board that it doesn't really matter what kind of a board it is or not. But it is it was an interesting anecdote. So those are my those are my three and a half learnings, because the last one is uh, once you know what kind of a board you've joined, you can still add value no matter what kind of a board it is. And you don't just add value by your experience, which is a lot, that's that's the starting point. But you can add value in many, many other ways beyond your experience that even you didn't think you would be adding yep. value. I like that. Thank you for uh, entertaining me going off script. We can come back on script. We've gotten through one question in 20 minutes. So at this rate, we'll be done at some point tomorrow. But I think that's the sign of a good conversation. Um, okay, so next question. And obviously, we've touched on a little bit of this right now, but feel free to unpack something we've already touched on or go in a different direction. What are you most curious about right now in the role that you have in the seat that you have in the industry? I've always been super curious about the future. Really, that's my that's my thing. Even when I was at Unilever, I was working in innovation and I was like, men and women don't need to make the washing easier because it was all about powders to tablets and how that makes washing easier. I was like, they just don't want to do the washing. Who wants to do washing? Who wants to take something to the dry cleaner? Why can't we have laser pens that zap the stain off and and, and you know, 
steam cupboards that don't mean you have to wash or sort or iron anything. And surely in the 21st century, we should have answers to these questions. And I did work on a stain zapping pen that also zapped the fabric out of the clothes. So, you know, it's still, uh, I hope, I still hope someone's working on it. But um, I'm always excited about the future and technology. And that sort of is what, you know, what technology can do for people. That's always, and what, more importantly, people will do with technology. Um, I'm watching the Vikings series right now, and, and, you know, they were basically really good users of technology, navigational, uh, ships, you know, all kinds of. So I'm always fascinated in no matter what I watch or uh, do about technology. I guess the thing that's most, that I'm most curious or spending my emotional and mental capacity on right now as a part of my work, not just personally, is what's happening in Ukraine, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, and how we can keep our team and Googlers safe, whether they're in Ukraine or working for an American company in Russia, and how um, our products can help people on the ground, um, and what we can do with the humanitarian response for refugees uh, with our products and also with the $35 million that we've raised. Our, our CEO, Sundar, just met with uh, Polish and Slovenian PMs, the, the two of the Kiev three, as they're called, the three prime ministers that went to Kiev recently. Um, so I think I think there's a lot we can do to help there. And that's sort of top of mind for me right now. Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about that before we pressed record, but... I don't know. I find myself kind of, you know, perspective is everything, right? And even this conversation up until now, it's, you just kind of, uh, sometimes I feel like I forget everything else that's going on. Not forget, but um, I think perspective is so important. And it's so important to recognize the things that really matter. And also, like we were talking about and knowing knowing a bit of what you told me and just mentioned now that Google is doing it, I think everybody needs to do their part, whether it's this, whether it's something else. It's something that I'm really passionate about. And obviously, the scale of what we're doing at Rival is, you know, barely registers on the map. But I really hope that in general, particularly with the way that general consumer expectations and attitudes towards businesses and brands are changing. And then, you know, change doesn't happen gradually. It usually happens in kind of like staircase moments. And I'm hoping, you know, the brands and how they've kind of been forced to react to what's happened here. I'm hoping this is a step change moment for brands to take a little bit more responsibility about how they spend their money and about how they build their businesses and really having a broader approach to growth that's not just focused exclusively or vast majority on maximizing shareholder profit. So I know that's not exactly what you said, but it's what it's kind of what um, it's what I thought of hearing what you were talking about, and I think is a big opportunity that I hope continues and doesn't just isn't just kind of like a blip on the map and then goes back to the way that it was. Yeah, no, no, no. I I really don't think so. I think you make a really important point, and it's the bigger point of the smaller point that I was making that. It ladders up to, which is companies can't just say, you know, wash their hands off of their responsibilities in these moments. And there's so much for companies and brands, no matter how small or large or whichever industry they're in, that they need to do. And um, people expect it of us. You know, when you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, I really love that research. They come out every year around 
doubles. Yeah. So people are looking more and more to CEOs to do something in these uh, situations. Stakeholder capitalism, you know, it's not about responsibility to shareholders, but stakeholders, the community that we operate in, our employees, much more than, you know, so I think, I think the world is absolutely moving in that direction. But like we've done things like handling, obviously being the only source of truth or the other side of the story, the true information in Russia, for example, with YouTube and search still, uh, it's still going. We're not making any money or spending any money in marketing in Russia, that's for sure. Uh, so the revenue is down to zero and the marketing budget's down to zero. But search and YouTube are still very much up and running. And on, until the Russian government stops it, it will be up and running. And you can imagine how important that is as a source of global information to Russians. And, um, and um, then I just... I found myself marketing something called an air raid app. It's an app that the Russian government and a Ukraine, sorry, Ukrainian government and a Ukrainian developer uh, developed that because the sirens aren't working during air raids, people don't know that an air raid is approaching and they don't know where to shelter. So there's now a, an app that we promoted on our homepage and um, it tells people, it gives them a notification that there's an air raid coming and where they need to go. And when we started promoting it, it was at 1 million downloads and it got to 4 million. And I was like, yay. And then I was like, what? That's like 3 million people in 24 hours that downloaded an app so they could hear about some bombs above their heads. Like, it's just so um, I don't think I ever thought I'd be marketing such a thing. So. But then I'm really proud that everybody, we debated, you know, could we do it like this? Could we do it like this? We could do it better. We just said, this is about speed. We've got to do things with speed. And I was just so in awe of my colleagues and how everyone, everyone I know, whether in Google or outside, uh, got, got together and helped with things like, million things like this through our products uh, and the humanitarian efforts, and all the other companies. And I think everybody's been surprised at how unanimous the reaction has been, right, with Western companies getting together. So, so, yeah. so this is a new thing that's been unfortunately put on your plate in recent weeks. But I'm curious to kind of broaden the scope a little bit and just talk a bit about what does a day in the life, either now or normally, look like for you because a CMO of Google for EMEA, it's a lot of markets. There's a lot that's under the Google umbrella these days, hardware, consumer apps, advertising, of course. Um, I'm curious, and I think our listeners would be curious just to hear what a day in the life looks like for you. What I eat and when I sleep and exercise and family time, those are pretty much fixed. And especially in the pandemic, I found myself like in these routines. Um, I always pretty much eat the same stuff and, you know, definitely for breakfast and uh, cherish dinner with my daughters, try to go to bed sensibly. Definitely between work and bed, I need to switch the brain off. You know, it used to be like I need to watch a, years ago CSI, like just put my brain to solve it. I need to solve a crime before I go to bed, something like So now it's Bridgerton. It varies. It was Vikings. But there's definitely a huge need to switch the brain off. Uh, and then I go to bed and I read a little, uh, uh, reading something called The Anatomy of Peace uh, this week. 
So that's kind of, I do have a, quite a routine, which is just about to get mega disrupted with hybrid going back to work in April that we're doing as Google for the first time in two years. We're going back to work three days a week. So it's going to look different. I'm going to be commuting to work again at least three days a week. I'm going to be traveling much more, but I'll still still try to keep to those boundaries. So I start with my boundaries. And then work-wise, um, so what happens during the day, that really, really varies. But I think there's three areas. One of them is making sure I'm working on the key priority areas. I'm quite clear, uh, maybe not on a daily, but on a, some friends of mine do it on a daily basis. The top three things I need to do today. I mean, I have my daily to-do list, but I think I have like top priority projects for the next several weeks. And then my assistant, who's like my much more than an assistant, she's like, she's called my assist, executive business partner. She and I agree, like no meetings outside these priorities. Uh, so working on the priorities. Second is team time, whether that's in just one-to-ones or with teams. And I've been doing this a lot more in the pandemic. I feel like I have a team across 35 countries and I've gotten, I used to have this feeling that I had to always travel to them to get to, to be closer to them and to understand them and their uh, users needs and their customers needs better and for them to hear directly from me. But the pandemic's been a great equalizer and I've gotten to tea times with my teams, you know, with no agendas or just checking in on them. And I've met more people from my team, gotten closer to them, also because we all had this big shared experience of the pandemic. Uh, so I'm really grateful to that. And I will continue to do that. So spending time on my priorities, checking in, my, in on, on my teams, and then um, uh, just making sure I'm sane and keeping boundaries on my well-being. It's a constant effort. And I'm kind of a hyper person, so I'm my worst enemy. But those three would be my daily routine. It is a constant. You know, we talk about work-life balance. And one of the big things that I'm passionate about with that is I don't think there's such thing as the right balance for everyone. I think there's the right balance for each person. And so it's it's. I think it's less talked about now you know, post-COVID and more working from home and more work flexibility and all that. But kind of the whole idea of, um, you know, when hustle culture got canceled, I'm glad that it did because I don't think that should be the expectation for everyone. And obviously having spent seven years working for Gary Vaynerchuk, like I literally come from that, probably the epicenter of where a lot of that came from. And I, th I think it's good that it got balanced, but I think it's so important that people understand like balance is what you want it to be based on your priorities. And the worst thing is to have somebody else set them, whether it's, and this is probably the bigger risk, somebody who's telling you that you need to work 100 hours a week if you ever want to have a chance to be successful, because that can obviously lead down the wrong road. You know, but so can choosing balance in a different way that's not right for you. So I think that's the thing I always push is like, you got to understand what balance means to you and then figure out and make sure that you try to maintain it as much as possible, knowing that very, very few days are actually going to have the balance that you want. And it's a constant constant effort. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, looking back over the course of your career, um, what do you think mattered most? And if it's a few things, that's fine, of course. But what mattered most to getting you to where you are right now? First of all, I think my family. Um, I grew up in Istanbul, but then my dad was teaching electrical engineering. He's a professor 
at uh, University of California in Berkeley when I was in primary or as the Americans say elementary school age and living in California at such a uh, such an age where I it really got into uh, the who shaped me uh, were formative years who shaped who I am and how I see the world and the experience it gave me from growing up in a very protectionist economy in Turkey where nobody traveled and you couldn't even hold foreign currency at the time, you know, to living in California. I'd never seen so many escalators and traffic lights. I was like, wow, they have so many traffic lights, you know. <laughs> and, um, and just uh, UC Berkeley, which was next to Lawrence Hall of Science and... And my first computer, like I was learning how to do basic and Fortran in the computer club, which was an elective course. Like it was, it's really dating me now, but um, they were really exciting times for uh, the technology world. My dad being an electrical engineer. So I think those were really, they, they really shaped who I am today. So I, I think I owe a lot to my family for shaping who I am and my love of technology. And it's made me think about the Californian approach to technology. It's like, you know, yeehaw, and a little bit unbridled, optimistic, and a little irresponsible, and not thinking about the unintended consequences of it. And uh, and then there's a Chinese way of approaching technology, which is, again, super ambitious, world-class, and uh, by any metric, uh, and uh, but different. It's more top down, isn't it? And I just feel like there is a way that Europe can lead in technology, a third way to the Californian and the Chinese way, and that is the European way. When I say Europe, Europe, Middle East, Africa way of approaching technology, a bit more thinking about who who we leave behind and not, a bit more with the values that we have here, like privacy. Uh, liberté, égalité. So um, that's really my 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 dream and my vision and everything that I do, every board role I take, every decision I make, every priority I work on tries to help that vision for EMEA's role in the future. A little bit too much worrying about technology and not enough pioneering in technology today in EMEA and uh, especially in continental Europe and how can we push that. So that's that's a huge thing. And going back to the kind of people, so in, when I was growing up, it was my parents. And then um, at Unilever, where I learned the foundations of marketing and my bosses there that hired me, like Folkert Snape, uh, Zeynep. Funnily, I've had more female bosses than male bosses my whole life. I wonder if that's a coincidence. And, um, and then moving into Yahoo, which was uh, 20 years ago, and Fru Hazlitt, another amazing woman, she said to me, are you going to sell soap powder the rest of your life? And because uh, it was very hard for me to leave Unilever. Then leaving Unilever, joining the digital world, and then I became a mom. So I'm not thinking of changing any jobs. Thank you. I've got a big life change already. And, uh, and then um, that's when I met Lorraine, my boss of 15 years now, who said to me, you know, come to Google. And I was like, Google? It's just a search engine. And do they even do marketing? What do these people do anyway? And that's how I met them. And I was like one person after the other, mind blown, every interview. And 
I genuinely, and, and she was like, you're going to open more, you know, you're going to open offices in so many emerging markets. And I'm like, if half of what she's saying is true, I'm in. And it was more than, you know, it was more than 100% of it true. So, so I really owe a lot to people like Lorraine, people like Fru, who got me into the tech world, my bosses in the Unilever world that I learned so much from that I live off every day. You know, every meeting I live off stuff I learned at Unilever. So I think I'm I'm glad you asked me that question because there's so many people I feel greatly indebted to. And I have to say Matt Britton, uh, who is the president of Europe, Middle East, Africa. And I, I want to say because A, because he's great, but also having spoken about all my bosses and the women who have shaped my life, you know, he's a man who's really championed me, given me opportunities. You can do this. No, I can't. Yes, you can. And you'll enjoy it. I'm like, really? And I think we women, well, men and women need such people in our lives that give us the opportunities and the confidence and the the, the, the visibility. So yep. hugely grateful. Yeah. And I, I totally believe that careers, lives are built as much on who as what like who you know and how they influence you is as big a factor as anything else. Um, so Yanj, I'm just conscious of time. I'd love to, let's maybe go to the question about your thoughts on rules for modern marketing. I'd love to cover that off before we have to jump off. So from your perspective, you know, this long career working in multiple different industries, I'm sure you have thoughts from all of that experience, but sitting where you sit now and for the marketers that are listening, what would you say are the most important rules for modern marketing in the world of 2022? I'm going to quote uh, Lorraine and Andy Berndt, uh, my dear friend and colleague Andy Berndt, and Lorraine Tuhill, my boss. It's really simple. Know the user, know the magic, connect the two. That's what we marketing people do. We need to know the diverse area of users really well. And I got that training from Unilever, actually, where we used to do house visits and, and you know, try to understand people. And it was incredible, you know, just in addition to crazy research. And at Google, of course, that's combined with data. So know the user, know the magic. What is it that you can offer them in a unique way that, may meet, that meets a big need? And connect the two, you know, tell the story and tell it in diverse ways. Uh, from diverse voices. And I love that. I enjoy that. It's an ongoing challenge. I really like that. One of the things that I say, because I think often, particularly in big incumbent organizations, marketing ends up playing the role of promoting the product. And actually, and I do think it's more fundamental than it sounds. The role of marketing is ultimately to connect the product to the consumer, to drive growth of the business. And I think there's a fundamental difference there, but I think the way that you describe it of know the user, know the magic and connect the two, I like that. And I might steal it going forward. So Yanja, unfortunately we are out of time. The last question I have for you is what is one thing that people should do differently after listening to this conversation in your perspective today? Yes. You would never guess this about me, but I'm super excited about metrics. So I have a friend who told me that in his Harvard MBA, he thought the finance and the accounting and economics classes were the most important. But then there was this one really no-brainer class called alignment around the right metrics. 
that he now is a very successful businessman keeps referring back to. And so what do you want to achieve and how will you be measured for it? I spend crazy amount of time and I get it wrong and I chase, you know, as leaders especially, I think it's one of the most important things we can do is to set the right metrics towards the right outcomes that our teams can uniquely deliver. So, for example, sales of devices is a shared metric, but the retail experience score can be something that marketing can be uniquely measured on. Setting the right metrics that we are accountable for, that we can make an outsized impact on, I I spend a crazy amount of time, months on these because I have so many different areas. So I I spend a lot of time and I've, I've done metrics that provide output, but not great outcome. So I set the wrong metrics. I go back to the drawing board and I really try to, I spend a lot of time, what's the right outcome and how do we measure it? And so I cannot tell you how much time I continue to spend on time, spend on that and how as leaders, Promotions, priorities, performance evaluations, motivation, focus, ideas, you know, just by changing metrics, I've had so much different conversations, quality of conversations, and I could go on and on about this, but I guess to to boil it down, I would say, be very intentional about, as a leader, what kind of outcome that you want your teams to deliver, because it's one of the most important things that you could do. Yep. The phrase that we use, which is similar, is it's about outcomes, not outputs. And I think that's where people can kind of get distracted sometimes. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know our listeners will too. Um, Lastly, just to kind of tie it off, if people want to connect with you, find out more about what you're up to, what Google's up to with everything you talked about today, where should we direct people to? You can find me on LinkedIn, Yonja Darvishoglu, Google. There's only one Yon Shadarvishola at Google, so it should be easy to find it. Find on LinkedIn. Amazing. And thanks for saying your name again. It gives me a better chance of getting it right in the intro than I'm going to do right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Yonja, thank you so much again. It was great to meet you and um, hope to cross paths with you soon in London. I hope so too, Eric. Great talking to you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Take care. Bye. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.